Welcome to the PT Project Podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm your host, James. We know that biomechanics can seem like a complicated and confusing field, but it really doesn't have to be. Join us every Thursday as we explore various topics related to biomechanics, human movement, and what it means to be a great PT in general. In other words, let us help you make sense of this wonderful world so that you can become the best trainer you possibly can be. Welcome back, guys and girls. We are here continuing the training series, looking at anatomy and training considerations for various body parts, and we are on to the back. Now, Jimbo, we have a problem here because the back is, excuse the pun, rather broad <laughs> when compared to the delt, right? Yeah, we've got a few muscles to be aware of, I think, there. When we're looking at the delt, I've got, okay, we've got this one muscle we're looking at. Yes, it does different things. It fans out. We've got anterior, we've got rear, we've got different stuff going on. But when we look at the back, how many muscles have we got, Paul? Do you know? 473, I believe. I think if you count each multifidae as a different one, you might... You, you might end up with that. But no, as, as Jimbo says that, there, there are so many things that make up what we broadly call the back and, and considerations for training the back that this is, a, this is a tough topic to attempt to condense, but we'll see if we can kind of wander our way through some of the things that's encompassed when we say the back, right? So when we start with the back, most people start thinking lats, rhomboids and those types of things, right? The the bodybuilding back stuff that you could see, right? Maybe the Christmas tree all the way kind of up. Even but even if, if we back, think of what I just said. Even if you go back before that, you go think, well, we've got width and we've got thickness. We've got exercises <laughs> that do the width. Down to your rows, yeah. yeah, and we've got exercises which will do the thickness as well. Which ones yeah. are we going to use? That's the, that's the key stuff, right? Um, so if, we, if we're thinking, even if we just said like lats and, and rhomboids and, and traps and stuff, well, we're actually talking about a couple of different joints, even when I've said those two words. The lats primarily move what's called your glenohumeral joint, the, the main part of the shoulder joint that everyone thinks about when they say their shoulder. But then you've got this upper back stuff, and actually the lats do, and most people attach onto, the scapula as well, the shoulder blades. So things like rhomboids, they're interested in this sort of scapular motion that moves around a completely different joint that's called your sternoclavicular joint, which is kind of at the front where your sternum is and it meets your clavicle, hence fucking sternoclavicular. So you've got this sternoclavicular thing moving. You've got this rib cage that is guiding the motion of the scapula because, you know, the ribs are in the way, so you can't just pull them straight straight forwards and backwards. They have to go round and wrap around things. And that's interacting with that glenohumeral joint as well. And so you've got this complex series of things and it gets worse because you also have a fucking spine, right? So the other big part of your back, unsurprisingly, is the spinal part of it, the, the spinal erectors, longissimus, thoracimus, uh, all those, like we mentioned multifidae earlier, rotatorium, there's all these little tiny fuckers, right? And maybe most people have heard of kind of thoracolumbar fascia, that kind of Christmas tree area that, uh, that we see in bodybuilders that the lats insert down onto and all that stuff. So there's loads of joints. And when we train the back, if you just think of your spine, think of an old lady for me and get into like what we call thoracic flexion or just like collapsed curved spine and see how far you can raise your arms up. And it won't be that far. And then see if you can about extending the chest through and where do your arms get to now? Or if you're back in this flex position, how much scapular retraction can you actually get? in there versus if I'm in different positions. So when we start talking about considerations for training the back, we have to have a consideration for where is the spine? 
where is the scapula? Where's the glenohumeral joint? And then where are the muscles as in relationship to those particular things? And this is why it gets really difficult to talk broadly about training the back. When we talk primarily to personal trainers and online coaches, and they will vary with who they work with. But personal trainers in particular are going to work with a crap load of gem pop people who do not move like bodybuilders on Instagram move. So when you hear discussions of training the iliac division of the lat, it's not that there's anything wrong with that as an idea. It's just that some of the positions and shapes you think that needs to look like for a client might be a position and a shape that the client you actually work with can't even get into. In which case, what do you do then? And so this is where we, I hope, try and kind of come in and give us these considerations for people who, who work with real people as well as not just the bodybuilding elite or people who love training and have great joint control, but the 40 and 50 year olds who earn decent money and pay most of your wages, right? Because that's the shit that really starts to matter unless you're, you know, the top couple of percent of the industry online who work with bodybuilders and the elite kind of lifting people. So I've done enough waffling to begin with there, Jim. But anywhere you want to jump off immediately or any first thoughts? Yeah, or even just jumping off a little bit. And you talk about bodybuilders and elite people where even if we think of us as personal trainers, a lot of you guys listen to this will be between the age bracket of maybe mid-20s up to late 20s. Some of you might be early 20s, some of you might be early 30s, sort of mark. The awareness you have, the joint motion you have is completely different, as Paul said, to what your clients may have. So don't just think elite bodybuilder. Think of yourself as well. There's one thing that you may go and play around with, a biasing certain parts of the lat type thing. But then when it comes to your client, the key thing is, okay, what's the available motion they have through the thoracic, around the scapula, uh, the glenal humor at the shoulder? That is going to determine where you go initially, not, okay, I need to focus on this part of the lat. I need to focus on upper back thickness. I need to focus on width, <laughs> whatever it is. Your first consideration is available range of motion, not what muscles you're going to focus on and work. Or even things like, ah, oh, we've got to train the lengthened position for stuff, which is the big, the big hotness in the industry. And so if I want to lengthen my lap, I'm going to have to do like a cast thing and, and wrap it around and reach away and... For the right person, that's absolutely a cool thing to start playing with and experimenting with. But you might have some people that if they haven't got that thoracic motion, that upward diagonal that you're asking them to reach on and reach around might just be like so far beyond them or put them into a really kind of painful position for them. And you're sort of forcing and crowbarring them in because that's what they have to do. In fairness to Cassie, he wouldn't say that you have to do that, by the way, right? But, but as with so many things, lots of people's ideas then go through Chinese whispers. And by the time they're applied on the gym floor, they're not being applied like they were necessarily meant by the person who came up with the idea at the time and who they had in mind for it. So we don't want that to be like sounding like a criticism um, of, of pulling around and trying to find length and positions. We think those things are cool and they're, they're great to explore for the right person. And so we're, we're back at that idea within there. All right, well, uh, let's start. We've just touched on the lat. So why don't we, well, let's carry on with the lat. So if we're thinking of the lat, the lat has these uh, 
I was going to say origin insertions and sort of couldn't make my mind up as to which word I decided to uh, to roll with on that. So that was a bit of a fail. Origin, right? So where does the lat start? Down about T7 kind of area, about halfway down your thoracic spine. And then it runs down all the spinous processes and the fascia of the kind of lumbar area. And then even comes onto the iliac crest. So you get these ideas of these different divisions of maybe a costal part around the ribs, an iliac part and a scapular part type thing, right? In a lot of people, there's a there's an attachment on the inferior angle of the scapula, the bottom of the triangle of the scapula, although it's apparently not in everyone. I have no idea what the ratio of people that it attaches into, but, you know, you've got one kind of on there. And then they all swoop round and attach round to the sort of front inside of the arm just near the bicipital groove. And so we've got this lat. And one of the big cool features of the lat, big fan-shaped kind of thing, is that it wraps, it wraps around the rib cage, okay? And when something wraps, it's being redirected like a little pulley system, and that changes the direction that it pulls in when it contracts. So generally speaking, when your arms are out in front of you, the lats are gonna be wrapping around your rib cage more. And so when they pull, they're gonna be pulling your arm backwards quite a lot. And then as your arms get further behind you, and this will depend on the thickness of you and the precise position you happen to be in, they're gonna be trying to pull your arms almost inwards adduct them ever so slightly but precisely where and when is going to vary in people as they as they roll through there so that's a bit of the musculature overview of the lat any first thoughts on on lat training jimbo um, so it goes back just throwing him in at the deep end yeah. <laughs> so it goes back to we've got two avenues we can go down on this one in terms of okay the more advanced type individual yourself client that lots of the sexy stuff we see on socials and then actually there's more probably actually the type of clientele you're going to work with the type of clientele you're going to work with is okay we might want a movement that maybe biases a bit more through the lat but really the consideration is we just need an awareness of what's going on through the thoracic scapula going humor and even if they're going to do a row movement that we think in our eyes obviously is going to bias a bit more of the lat we're going to think actually no from an application point of view the key focus is going to be awareness around scapula. The key focus is awareness around scapular humor rhythm as they're going through shoulder glenohumeral flexion. Or sorry, as they're going through shoulder extension, should I say, as they're pulling their scapula back. Have they got awareness of that scapular position to allow the appropriate rhythm on there? Or is the scapula saying out and round the rib cage? Is the scapula staying protracted that they started in that lengthened position as they drive their elbow back? Very likely that's the case in the early days seen that time and time again where you go to the start of a row movement the scapula comes around the rib cage they go through the concentric range and the scapula stays there it is say it doesn't it's not coming back congruently with it so if you're working with someone who's more advanced you may start to bias a bit more of okay let's focus just on shoulder movement let's not worry too much about scapula and let's really just focus on driving that elbow down and try and isolate a bit more kind of humor movement on there it's going to vary Always to that person who's more advanced, you're like, okay, as you go back through the movement, let's focus on taking the humerus back and get maybe more of them thoracic fibers. Or you're going to go through a similar row movement, but let's drive that elbow down towards the hip to get more of some of them lower fibers on there. So you may change the internal intent to bias different fibers for someone who's more advanced. But in the early days, it's more back to the joint motions and positions, skill requirement, rather than thinking obviously about bias in different fibers. 
And one of the things that happens is Jimbo talks there when you think about where am I drawing parts of my body? So am I pulling down with the like back of my elbow towards a lower part of me? Uh, you know, if I'm using a cable or a dumbbell, I might also be changing the resistance and where the moments to my either elbow or shoulder become. And so I might get, oh, I can get more lat in this position by lowering my hand a little bit. But what if I go too far when I'm getting some weird like tricepy thing? Like what is this going into? Right. So how much you need to adjust and tweak and move is always going to be dependent on what the client is showing you in that in that particular motion. And so these are one of the difficult parts of you know, providing a broad answer of this is the magic cue that's going to solve everything. It's like there isn't a magic cue because I don't know what is wrong currently with what your client or you are doing or what I'm trying to reinforce about what you're doing well. And so they're just things for us to start considering as we go in there. I suppose one of the other ones we can um, kind of touch on is, because people are talking about it a little bit at the moment, is the lats in the sagittal plane or the lats in the kind of frontal plane. And and maybe, we touch, uh, maybe we'll touch on teres actually as we go into this. So you have another muscle called your teres major. And teres major originates on the inferior angle of the scapula and just above and on the lateral part of it. And so if you remember, we said the lat also has an origin in most people that is on the inferior angle <laughs> of the scapula there. And then teres major also shoots up, round and inside to the front of the arm. So front and inside of the arm. And if you're ever learning muscular origins and insertions and stuff, one of the acronyms, shout out to Skinny Gaz of Triage for this one, is the lady between two majors. And if we're looking at the front of the humerus, anterior aspect, the lady between two majors helps us think of muscular insertion points and where they run. So we've got, well, the two majors, pec major and teres major, and then the lady is a muscle beginning with L that we've just been talking about that sits in between those two points. So we've got pec major on the outside, then the lat, the lady, and then finally teres major just inside that. But they're really, really close together. And what that means is that teres major and the lat have origins and insertions that are right fucking next to each other and fiber directions that are in the same direction as each other, at least for the upper part of that lat. And so when we start getting these ideas, and I think people are chilling on them a little bit of going, this is just a teres exercise. It's like, look, if it's a teres major exercise, it's going to involve some of your lat, right? Just because you're in a front or more frontal plane, it's not a purely frontal plane as you go into those things, doesn't mean, oh, this is now going to be lots of teres. Also, even if you're putting like EMG stuff onto things, they're right next to each other. You get this thing called crosstalk, which is just, if you put a microphone in a room that's trying to pick up on a band playing, and I stick the microphone in front of me as a bass player, but the drummer's in the same fucking room, guess what gets picked up on the microphone? Some drumming, because it's also quite close. So that electrical activity, you know, it's not to say that there isn't benefit to doing these things. And there might be small differences. Could it also be that because the teres is a lot smaller than the lat, that it gets activated to a higher degree because it just can't produce as much and we're keeping a bit more in the lat. Could it be that the lat, because it creates a resultant, actually has an angle that's down a little bit more, so it does make sense to use the teres a bit more? Yeah, I think all of those things are perfectly reasonable shit to throw out and start playing with. But I also go, okay, cool, that could be maybe a bit more teres focused in a traditional lat pull down when your arms are out to sight. But that does not mean that it's no lat. And it definitely also doesn't mean that it's always more teres in everyone. Because there can be a whole bunch of shit that's going on with people's shoulders and stuff that you're like, eh, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with this person and what shape they're kind of in. So if I wanted to get 
so that's the first bit, right? If we're doing a traditional lat pull down, hands out to the side type thing, more frontal plane area, are we going to get lats? Yes, of course we're going to get lats. If I want to get a bit more length into them, well, here's one thing. You could think about moving your, your humerus, your glenohumeral joint, right? So my arm goes up or it goes forwards or whatever. But I can also, if I elevate my scapula or my, my shoulder girdle more technically, well, my arm goes up in space. So I can, I can actually create length in my lat, not just by glenohumeral motion, but by scapular motion as well. And so what I could start doing is going, all right, well, how do I get more length? Well, if I protract, so first off, I need the thoracic extension available to be able to do this. So I've got some thoracic extension and then maybe my glenohumeral joint has swung up to 120 degrees. I always kind of refer to it because I'm inappropriate as Nazi salute territory, right? So I'm on that kind of diagonal angle and then I can protract and reach forwards and then my arm can come across my body a bit more. And we're into that kind of cast reaching around or pull around, I think he calls it, uh, type thing on this. And that's absolutely going to get as much length as you're probably going to find in your lat around there. But I could also play with getting still a bit more length with scapular motion in other positions too. And there's still always going to be contingent on, does that feel comfortable for my client? Does it, does it feel okay from a joint perspective for them uh, in those particular positions? And you, you know, it's one of those ones where you, you don't need to pick one or the other. What kind of weird-ass programming uh, and world have you set up where it's like, oh, no, you should do all of your lat training in the sagittal plane. What? Like, why? <laughs> no one thinks that for almost anything else, right? Like, I've got... If I wanted to train my lats in a fully shortened position, I'd actually need something that's pulling out to the sort of side of me so that I can really tuck my arm back and in and I'd have to sort of do it single arm or I need wide cables or something to get into this particular position. So maybe I can do some of that and then maybe I can do some stuff that's more traditional and then maybe I can have some rowing where it comes forwards and then maybe I can have some really lengthened stuff where it comes forwards up and across me a little bit. And you could do all of those and they would all train your lat. <laughs> Any extra thoughts there? Yeah, well, one of the rants have been up about <laughs> <laughs> um, we're used to you ranting paul it's absolutely fine <laughs> i think one of the biggest things is that we we often think okay well what's this optimal perfect exercise whereas really when it comes down to it if we want to stay in the game for as long as possible the biggest thing consideration really is what variations have we got rather than always working this optimal perfect joint position or this optimal perfect length and position you know, actually having a degrees of variation between okay how much shoulder flexion how much adduction do we really work this reach around shoulder flex scapula protracted position um for a while but then do we bring in something else some in that's additional side bend as well if i wanted to get a little bit more out of that i could actually do that too <laughs> yeah and do we bring some traditional that pull down type movement in because it's a different joint position as well yes we're going to say it's not quite as optimal from that sense we're not getting that same length in but having various joint positions is going to be key for longevity to be able to stay in the game as well so it's not just about okay this is the perfect position it's like no actually well one do i almost enjoy doing that movement as well and then two what variation can i bring from exercise to exercise to make sure say my, my joints are staying in a good place as well rather than just always hammering that exact same position that exact same path that exact pain motion on there um, yeah. And then almost looking maybe at the other end of the, the, I think, the scale sometimes where you see some people try and overemphasize feel 
in the contractor position so obviously you've touched on like, the lengthened position where we're going to come up and round the body um, you're talking obviously about pulling from a wide to a narrow position to get a contraction what you'll see a lot of people start to do is bring their spine into it and laterally flex or maybe rotate as well so they'll go into the bottom of a row position the finished position a row position and they'll start to maybe rotate or laterally flex. Whereas we try and visualize where the, if we say we're doing a cable single arm row, visualize where that line of pull is from the cable. That's trying to pull back to where it came from straight out in front of you. So that's got a line of pull that's going straight forward, but by you leaning to the side, you may get a better sensation, you may get a better feel, but the wrist resistance isn't directly challenging that as well so we've got to be careful sometimes of over trying to get a sensation for something like the lats there which is going to bring other muscles into the equation um whereas it's all being aware of the spinal position and not squeezing or crunching over into that finished position and if we if we do that lateral flexion because we've all done it and gone yeah i feel more lat there and you're like yeah you've shortened it further and we tend to get more sensation the resistance isn't in the plane that that thing is shortened by but because we've shortened the muscle we've effectively made ourselves a little bit weaker and okay, maybe that's enough uh, for us to go, oh, there's the sensation. And actually, sometimes is that useful for a particular client so that they can connect to something for the first time? Yeah, right? We're not saying never use those things. It's just be aware that the sensation might not mean as much. Maybe I get them to do less of the lateral flexion. And if I'm good, I can manually assist or resist and tweak that thing so that I can just give them more appropriate resistance so they can lock into their lat if everything else is in a good place, rather than just rely on the shortened muscle sensation to get us that. Because in my version of events where I adjust it, I've given you more tension. And if tension is the driver of hypertrophy, not sensation, then the fact you could handle more load and more tension in those positions should lead to more growth than just the feel of it. You'll also usually find that there is still a correlation between feeling it and that tension in those positions. Something cool. you touched on there so, is almost the, the cue in the cue in the practical application that if we're we're working with clients face to face, I know a lot of you guys listen to this maybe online, but if you're working with clients face to face, getting hands on and how we coach your cue stuff um, can really be beneficial. So with a lat size stuff, if we're trying to have a certain bias, a certain feel, a lot of times people will just focus on trying to pull their hand in. So you'll see clients almost pull in with the wrist a little bit. They go back to wrist flexion. They start to fatigue. Whereas if you can come in almost under the armpit, place your hand slightly under the armpit, almost onto their tricep, and you can give them something to push against. So that can try and help with almost trying to push that humerus down, drive that elbow back. So they're not thinking about the hand. You give them something close to where the lat is that they're trying to push in can create more of an internal thought, internal feel. A lot of times with a bench press, with a pressing movement, we think elbows in. So it's that same thing, obviously, in a, a pull, pulling movement, a rowing movement, but we're giving the client something to push against so we can put our hands on their tricep. And that could throw some stuff off. And okay, if you put the hand on the tricep, they may start to get a sensation of feeling around tricep, around long head of tricep on there. So that might <laughs> be a bad thing. But then it also might work as well. That now they can start thinking, okay, I'm driving the elbows down. Or maybe you want a bit more emphasis around scapula. So you move your uh, position your hands inside the scapula there and they're thinking okay now we're going to work more scapular movement rather than glenohumeral humor movement on there but that can help sometimes if you get hands-on with clients who struggle to feel struggle to get a sensation 
And here's one of the things within that as well. Sometimes you'll get people go, all right, and we've almost just said it ourselves, haven't we? That sensation is overrated and it doesn't tell us that. Blah, blah, blah. And okay, fine. But here's some other cool data uh, within things like bench pressing and stuff that if people do a tricep specialization thing or they actually actively think about contracting certain muscles, right? Whether it's, I'm going to contract my pecs, I'm going to use my anterior delt more, I'm going to use my triceps. And they run a phase where they deliberately overemphasize the use of a different part. And then they come back six, eight weeks later and go back to doing the normal bench press or whatever it is they were doing. You actually see a greater activation of the thing they've just been specializing in. Now, when they're now doing this new movement than you did beforehand. And so... You know, we might be going, oh, well, why are you getting them to cue this thing? That's not the bit that it's trying to work. It's like, no. But if they're never connecting to that, maybe it's useful for us to overemphasize something that might not be something we're trying to permanently do so that we can temporarily improve it so that it then comes back into the game a little bit more than it was previously doing. So just because there's this idea of like, well, sensation doesn't tell us what's getting the most amount of attention and yada, yada, yada. Well, we don't also don't have to think so short term. It doesn't have to be about just this session. It's where am I also trying to take this sequence of things so that maybe longer term my client can get their lats to fire a bit better in something than they currently do or in whatever body part you want to talk about in, in that particular thing. So we can think more than just the session as well. As long as you can start to justify these things as to here's why I'm doing it. Here's what I'm thinking. Is that sensible? And ultimately, did it help my client? If it helped your client, as far as I'm concerned, it was pretty much right, right? And now, you know, that could go wrong at some point because maybe you can't tell that you've been fucking things up for a while because it takes a little bit of time to, to manifest. But generally speaking, I'm quite a practical person in the sense of if it helped my client solve something, cool, good enough for me. That was that was right, okay? So, all right, we've, we've done lats for a little bit. Let's let's shift our way up uh, the back a little bit more. I've, I've done waffling again for, for a little while, so I'm going to hand you over to Jimbo for some thoughts about rhomboidy, trappy kind of stuff. What are you starting to think, mate? I think with with there we've got to understand that the biggest almost consideration when it comes to application is okay to get scapular movement. So we know rhomboid traps come through onto scapula; they don't come directly onto the shoulder, they don't come directly onto the glenohumeral on there. But to warrant getting that movement, not always, but often we're going to focus obviously on rowing type movements that carry movement through the shoulder that then allow for more movement through the scapula. So we could still do. And a row movement with the elbows tucked in in an adducted type position, but focus on scapular movement, just as we could do a row movement with the elbows out in an abducted position and focus on scapular movement. As long as they've both got that internal thought of focusing on scapular movement, we're going to have the rhomboids, the traps working. When we start to limit scapular movement a little bit and focus more on glenohumeral, then okay, it starts to bias a little bit more lats in that adducted position. As soon as we go through greater degrees of abduction, the lats have got less ability to work. So they're coming out of the plane, in a sense, as we bring that elbow out. But as we bring that elbow in, the lats have got more ability to work. So the degrees of ab and adduction sort of partly determines how much the lats are going to come in. But then our internal thought is how much are we going to allow scapular movement to bring the rhomboids stroke traps in so don't feel that you have to do a wide grip row a wide grip pull downy type movement to work mid back 
type things. You could still do more of an adducted shoulder position with the elbow slightly out to the side where you're not blocking, your lats aren't blocking the movement. You can have your elbow slightly out to the side, slightly abducted, but not all the way out to 90 degrees of shoulder abduction, slightly abducted. And as long as your lats aren't blocking the movement, that could still be a large bias, a large emphasis on trap stroke rhomboids as well. So how can you set up a movement? How can you set a, set a position to allow for maximal scapular movement if the bias is through mid-back? So one of the things as well is that look, just because something doesn't move doesn't mean it's not loaded, right? When we do things like an RDL or you're doing any kind of row, there is a moment that's being produced to your sternoclavicular joint, right? Which means those scapular retractors, protractors, elevators, depressors, whatever direction the resistance happens to be going in in that moment that means those are the guys that need to resist it, there's a challenge to all those things. Just because we're not moving it doesn't mean they're not being asked to do something and to control something. And so we've got this bit of going, all right, well, how do I then, as Jimbo said, like, okay, well, can I get actual scapular motion if I'm doing rhomboid and trap type stuff? Well, if you start looking at those fiber directions to begin with, and we think rhomboids, medial border of the of the scap, inside border of the scap, and then running up again to spinous processes. And they're on a bit of a diagonal. So when they retract, they actually retract upwards ever so slightly. And one of the things you can test on yourself is if you're trying to get maximum retraction, is so pinch your shoulder blades back as much as you can. And then you'll usually find, for most of us, that if I elevate ever so slightly while retracting, I can close that gap a little bit more. Sometimes it's easier to see on someone else or stick your fingers into that kind of area, see if they can kind of pinch it. But full retraction for most of us involves a little bit of elevation going on within that. And that kind of follows that rhomboid line. So, okay, well, if that's the case, then fully lengthening for the rhomboids would actually involve protraction and a little bit of depression. And in order for doing that, maybe I need to go into some flexion of my spine as well. So, okay, I'm going to have to go thoracic flexion, protracted and down slightly. And then as I'm trying to fully shorten them, I'm going to go, all right, extend through the thoracic, retracting and elevating slightly and cool. Well, that's bloody awkward to start. Like, no, almost no one does their rows with that much control as we as we start going through it. But you could if you wanted to start exploring what those those guys are doing. So and then traps just sitting on top of that. Go for it, mate. So what happens, Paul, if you've got a client who's a bit more in a flexed thoracic? I can never say them a couple of things back to back. So a client who's got someone who's more in a flexed thoracic position, and you were saying, okay, there's a little bit of this elevation of the scapula as we're trying to get maximal shortening, but now actually they're stuck in this flexed position. So what scapula motion yeah. would they be looking at to warrant almost getting that same degrees of shortening or same degrees of motion through the scapula? Yeah, so this one's probably easier if you can see it, and you can't because this is a podcast, right? But if you try and collapse... So I'll tell you what, get into that same position of retraction and elevation and see if you can hold that and then collapse yourself down and sort of notice where your shoulder blades go. And you'll kind of start to see... Maybe you'll start to see, depends on how you perform it, right? That They go up. They almost look like they're elevating more than was previously the case as we've changed our position within this. So it's almost more of a shrug now than it used to be in that previous position. So what these things start to look like is really still dependent on the person who's in front of us. And I promise you, you're going to find a crap load of clients who live in thoracic flexion. There you go, I can say that one okay. Um, as, as they go through these things. And so if you're trying to work their mid-upper back type area for them, knowing, oh, actually, this pulls in a slightly different direction is something you would need to know if you wanted to challenge those guys within there. 
anything you wanted to add on to uh, onto that? No, it's a key point. Just like we may be able to retract in a certain position, but if we've got a client who's more flexed over, just their retraction is going to more look like almost elevation as well. So yeah, don't assume that just because when you retract with that little bit of elevation, that's one position, but then the client's stuck in a set thoracic position, theirs is going to look completely different on that. So if we then move on to, to trap, right? So we've got upper trap, mid trap, lower trap, right? And currently there's a bit of discussion um, as to do the upper traps elevate the scapula? No, right? The levator scap and, and some other guys are going to be the guys that elevate it. Well, and if, if you actually look at the direction that people's traps, well, first off, it depends how big their traps are, right? But if you look at the general direction of, of traps and kind of someone like myself, they go down the neck and then sweep out quite reasonably horizontally towards the scapula. So this has led to this idea that they're mainly just retractors. But if the upper trap contracts just by itself, okay, it only has a slight upward angle, but where it pulls means it actually has a moment that creates upward rotation. Upward rotation of your scapula is in large part what starts to happen in the first parts of elevation of things. It's the scapula and the, gleno, the glenoid, that's the, the shoulder socket, if you like, is going to sweep and swoosh its way kind of up towards the ceiling so that you can get your arm overhead type thing. It, you, your arm does not get necessarily overhead by just elevating the scap, right? Like, I, I haven't changed the angle that my glenoid is facing if I purely elevate and I don't get any of the upward rotation. Well, the upper traps then, well, most people when they do shrugs are actually doing this elevation and retraction thing. They're not just going straight up in elevation without any of that pinching together type thing. So I find it just a slightly kind of weird one where you kind of go, all right, well, yes, it might not be pure elevation, but what we've got really is upward rotation with some retraction, which is going to be a combination then of, of trap and rhomboid stuff in that area. Mid traps going to be running, well, if you have a look at them, they're, they're pretty obviously retractors in a reasonably horizontal plane. And then you've got these lower trap guys. Now, oh, by the way, these all this part of the trap runs down along the, the spine of the scapula. Um, although the upper trap has some attachments onto the acromion, so round onto the, and onto the first start of the clavicle as it meets the acromion there. So again, we've got this shoulder girdle, like upward rotation tilting that's being created by that guy that for me is... Okay, it's not pure elevation, but in terms of how people actually train, it is still what they do, right? They get this pivot around the sternoclavicular joint that's driven by these guys that is a combination of upward rotation, retraction, and elevation, and in which case then it's going to be trap, which is, you know, that shouldn't be, I don't think, that surprising. It just means we're labeling it different and having a weird argument. Um, anything that we haven't touched on with some... Uh, oh, here's, an, here's something we haven't spoken about, and I'll make you explain it, because, again, I've been waffling. Uh, <laughs> if we're thinking arm path for uh, for just back in general, can you start to talk us through some of the differences you're starting to think about if someone's got, like, a wider, like, T-shaped kind of classic upper back row versus, you know, that kind of closer grip type row? I think well, with arm path, sometimes before we even think about what we're going to choose... Or what we'd want, we've got to think, well, what's the piece of kit we're using going to offer? So obviously if we're using a dumbbell or cable, then we've got a bit of choice there. But if we're using a machine, that's fixed to a path often. And nowadays it is almost the in thing by the looks of it with machine manufacturers that has got to perform this diverging path where your hands start relatively narrow and they come apart as you go through a row, as you go through a pull-down motion. The penalty issue with that is it's going to be predetermined. It's going to be preset in a sense that width that finishes in or the width it starts in is going to be determined 
by the machine determined by the excursion you're going through. And for some people that might be perfect, for some they're too narrow, for some that may be relatively too wide on there. So that has to be a consideration you know, there. But when we're looking at an optimal path of motion, if we've got someone who's a little bit thinner through the rib cage, maybe a little bit less muscle tissue on there, they're probably going to be thinking more just straight forward and back, probably thinking a bit more parallel path. Whereas as soon as we get someone a bit thicker, stroke more muscle tissue to warrant getting more length, and then they can use maybe more of this diverging path type thing where the hands can come in in the start position. And as they go through a concentric range, the hands are going to come out to account for the width of everything going on, obviously with the traps, rhomboids, lats, everything back there. So they're going to finish in this wider position because of their structure um, on there. So yes, that's a generic recommendation. Um, but it's going to be completely down to the individual. But I'd be thinking, okay, someone who's a bit more thinner, less muscle tissue, not going to need as much of this coming in, stroke going out, where someone more to muscle tissue, a bit thicker, is going to need a bit more width or a bit more sort of coming, diverging, coming out as they go through the range on there. But yeah, as always, so it's going to vary on the individual. Yeah, I, th I think we can also add in, you know, when I when I take my arms and I, bring them away from my body so they're not tucked in nice and tight. I'm going to change the, where the lat wants to pull, right? So if I'm on that more upper back rowing type path, right, whether that converges or diverges and all that other good stuff, it's my lats now, because of their insertion point, want to pull my arm downwards a little bit, whereas they're going forwards and back. So they start getting quite out of the plane of where our arm is going. And so when you re take your arms away from the side of your body a bit more, we can usually say you're going to expect to see a bit less lat as he goes through. And as a result, maybe we're going to get more rear delt. We're going to get more scapular motion possibly in this. But again, if I go too high on it, maybe I'm not going to get as much scapular motion. And so that's going to be a bit awkward. So that precise path is going to be unique to you guys as we do it. We have to wrap this one up relatively quickly because sadly Jimbo has to, to run away. So we didn't really touch on the, the spinal erectory kind of stuff. So maybe we'll do that thing separately. But remember, all of the stuff we've been talking about with the back, it's all contingent on you still having that spinal base for the scapula to move and for the glenohumeral to move around. So they're all interacting at all points within this stuff. But there you go. A few basic ideas, maybe not so basic, who knows, uh, for to start thinking about, considering and playing with. We didn't even touch on resistance and stuff. Maybe we should do a back part two where we actually think about some more exercises and some ideas within there. Uh, and we'll hit that one next time. So thank you guys very much. You can find us on all major platforms, including Apple Podcast and Google Play. If you like what we have to say here, then please do leave a rating or review. We're only here because of your support. So thank you very much for listening. If you want everyone else to understand how awesome biomechanics is as well, then please do connect them with the PT Project podcast.